Good morning. So Darcy read to us from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 to 6. When we listen to this passage of scripture, we hear a man by the name of Agur. And he reveals a profound understanding of his own limitations, his own limits as a human being. No matter how bright, no matter how enlightened we are, we have not gone up to heaven and come back again. The smartest among us, the greatest intellects that this world has ever known, no matter how you rank on those scales, no matter where you graduated in your class, no matter how successful you are on your job, we've not traveled up to heaven and come back again. We've not gathered up the wind and wrapped, wrapped up the waters in a cloak. We've not established the ends of the earth. Human understanding and wisdom require input from God. Because we're created. We're creatures. The best among us is a creature. One who has been created. We're not the creator. So God's word, which is flawless. He says this in verse 5. God's word is of inestimable value for every dimension of our life. For every sphere of our life. For every aspect of our lives. One of the more famous verses in the Bible is this. Man does not live by. Does anybody know this? Bread alone. But by every word. That comes from the mouth of God. Now think about this. This is astonishing. We actually need more than bread to live. This is amazing. It would be hard to put, put that notion any more strongly, wouldn't it? To say that even more important to your life than what you eat is the word of God. Isn't that what Agur is saying at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 30? That all of my understanding, all of my intelligence is utterly limited. I've got a problem. Now where do we find this word of God? It's the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. And it is very hard to overstate the importance of the Bible for the church and the world today. But that's the subject of my sermon this morning. We're in the midst of this series on Scripture. The first sermon I talked about how Scripture is God's authority mediated. In the second sermon, that scripture is fundamentally a story, the true story of the world. And and we talked about how stories function authoritatively. In the third sermon, we talked about how anybody can get anything they want from the Bible. So what are the guardrails and its tradition? But this morning, let's return back to the larger point, the Bible and how important it is. The amazing thing is that we live in the West. And here in the West, we are like Agur. We are tired. We continue to lumber along the path of vacuous 
secularism. Look at art today. On the one hand, it seems that the more brutal and the more shocking, the more disgusting, the more upsetting, then the more accepted a piece of art is. So on the one hand, in art, we have brutalism in the guise of realism. And then on the other hand, we have such a pervasive cynicism that the coolest kids on the block are the cynics. Whether it was Seinfeld a decade ago or 30 Rock in this day and age. 30 Rock, this TV show, which is ironizing TV shows. In the 1960s, writers like Tom and Pynchon successfully used irony to lay waste to corruption and hypocrisy to reveal the dark side of the Vietnam War and American culture. But now we live in a moment where lazy cynicism has replaced thoughtful conviction for the well-educated person. So it suddenly puts you in the educated realm to be able to lay waste to everybody around you through cynicism and irony. But it's not just art. The disasters and tragedies that beset the West in the 20th century, making it in some estimates the most brutal century in history. How do you deal with this? How do you escape the mantra that rings from the opening line of Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanity. Everything is vain. How do you escape being disillusioned and disenchanted and convinced, like the, author, like the narrator of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, convinced that there is nothing new under the sun? That one political regime after another, they're all the same. Republican or Democrat or Libertarian, they get sucked up. Democracy or some radical religious hegemonic government in the Middle East, they're all the same. How do we escape this? How many of you in this room, don't answer out loud, but how many of you feel cynical? And you feel tired? At one point in the book of Ecclesiastes, the narrator whom we call Kohelet says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And then you know what he does? In the next paragraph, there's nothing better than to eat, drink, and be merry. Have you noticed how every Thursday or Friday you're going to get the same question? What are your plans for this weekend? What you got going on? What are you doing this weekend? It's as if our whole culture has found so little satisfaction and meaning in life that we've developed this habit of frenetic activity followed by weekends of wild feasting. We've got to find something to do on the weekend to fill the enormous gaping hole left by our shallow lives. So many of us are just like Agur in Proverbs 30. I am weary. Oh God, I'm weary. Oh God, I'm worn out. But it doesn't have to be this way. Like Agur in Proverbs 30, like Kohelet in the book of Ecclesiastes, we can once again discover the clean, living water, the bread of life that will refresh us. The answer to our fatigue in the West, to our cynicism, to our ennui, to our ever-driving quest to fill up our... The answer is the Bible. That's what Agur says. We can once again discover the clean springs of living water, the bread, more basic than the bread of life. Could it be that we're trying to live on bread alone and we're discovering the bankruptcy of that?
What we've got to do is believe the Bible again. Love it again. Read it again. Study it again. Learn it again. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. It's the second book of the Bible, about 60 or 70 pages in. While you're turning there, let me say to you that at certain points in the Bible, you will encounter these rich, dense veins. These concentrated passages. One of my friends calls them nodal passages. And if you explore these passages that I'm talking about carefully and fully, what they end up doing is opening up large swaths of Scripture. They enable you to begin to see the root connections that flow through all of the Bible and hold it together. Exodus 19 is one of those nodal passages, one of those concentrated passages. Exodus 19, verse 1, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Raphadim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Do you get all this repetition? Do you feel like, um, okay, get on with it. That's a rhetorical technique of the writer. He's trying to build your anticipation. Anytime you're frustrated from what knowing comes next in the literature, you're supposed to say, what comes next? There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, And keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai where he is about to establish them as a legally binding partner. He's about to establish them in a legally binding covenant relationship with himself. God will be their God. And they will be his people. And so at this poignant moment, God reviews what he's done for them and his plans for their future. And we hear these words in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on... Did anybody catch it the first time I read it? Eagle's wings to myself. What an incredibly beautiful intimate image. One of my favorite authors could never escape it. J.R.R. Tolkien. 
at the high point of his story. Where do you get, where do you think he got that eloquent image from? Where do you think his imagination was trained? In our gospel, wait, this is the very heart of Christianity. This is a nodal passage. Being brought to God. That's the heart of it. Being brought, God is the destination. Now in our gospel reading, John chapter 17, in the third verse, Jesus expresses the same idea in a remarkable way. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, don't misunderstand this. For the last couple of hundred years here in America, too many Christians have mistakenly assumed that eternal life is focusing on the length of life. Living forever, a type of immortality. It's definitely that. But that is by far the minor point of this phrase in Scripture. In John's gospel, the primary meaning of eternal life is far more than life that goes on forever. It is life as God intended it to be. It's the life of the kingdom of God, which is already broken into history and is available freely in Jesus Christ. Did you hear that phrase in the middle of the verse? And this is eternal life, that they know you The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The idea of knowing God. Again, this is a biblical phrase. It's not something he just brings up. They've been educated for centuries and millennia in what it means to know God. We first learn about knowing God in the Garden of Eden. In the Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in, Eden is a play on the word delight. So Eden is the garden of delight. But garden is a a bit tepid translation of that word. Eden is more than a garden. It's more like an extensive park. The park of Eden, full of delights. But chief among all of the delights was the intimate relationship between humans and their creator. Personal, intimate. In the midst of this garden of delight was the tree of life. The embodiment of the presence of God himself. You see throughout the Bible, the language of knowing is a way of expressing the intimate sexual bond between a husband and a wife. So knowing God, Jesus said that they may know you. Knowing God means being brought into an intimate, personal relationship with your creator. Now, this includes knowing about God. How could it be anything less? But it's more than that. Knowing God means being brought into this intimate, a personal relationship. So now going back to Exodus 19 verse 4. God rescued the Israelites and brought them to himself. Now, if you have your Bible, go to the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 1. If you feel like I'm a bit helter-skelter jumping here and there, stay with me. And we'll bring this all together. Revelation chapter 1, 
verse 12. If you're new to the Bible, just head to the maps. Find the maps, pull back a couple of pages. Revelation 1, 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. For those of us familiar with the Bible, this is, you know, this is Jesus Christ. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If we were to continue reading in this remarkable book, we'd see that those lampstands, that the Son of Man, Jesus, this awesome cosmic figure, that the lampstands he is among, these are the churches. And so we get this incredible image of, the G- of Jesus the Christ, the cosmic ruler of the universe, God himself in the flesh, walking among Churches. And his primary way of walking, as we read the book of Revelation, is his word. As it is read and listened and preached. Hebrews 2 says, In the congregation, when the church gathers in worship, the Lord Jesus himself walks among us. The Bible stands at the heart of the relationship between God and humans. Now, putting all of this together, the written word of God, the Bible, is the means God uses to bring us to himself. Now, don't get me wrong. God can and does speak in many ways. He speaks in dreams In conversations, in nature, in reason, in wisdom. God can speak in many different ways. And anytime God speaks, we must attend to him. But all of those non-biblical speakings of God must be measured against the Bible. The Bible is the primary, fundamental, authoritative means by which... God speaks and brings us to himself. The Bible is fundamentally central to God's work in the world. So central to God's work that when John is describing Jesus Christ, he calls him the Word. In fact, turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, this passage that Mike read to us. I'm, I'm trying to draw lots of threads together. My task in this last sermon was to think very clearly and try to teach very clearly what is the relationship of the Bible and the church. And first we get clearly in front of us what the Bible is. It is the word of God. It is the source of life. It's the answer to fatigue and ennui and cynicism and, and irony launched to a supreme position. 
Now, what is the relationship of it to the church? Jesus Christ himself, who is the word, walks among us. Notice Acts chapter 6, verse 7. What's happened in this paragraph, it's just astonishing. The church is growing, and the apostles, who were the pastors, they are totally overworked. Because Christianity is not just about the word, it's also about the broken areas of, of society. And there's, there are widows who really need help. And if the gospel doesn't have to do with all of life, then the gospel isn't the gospel. Because it's, a, it's about the creator redeeming all of life. And so these widows rise up and they say, we need help. Now this is an astonishing move. The preachers say, as incredibly important as helping widows is, we will not... Give up the ministry of the word. Do we have preachers like that today? Who have this deep sense that the word of God is the lifeblood of the church. It's a remarkable thing for a church to set aside a pastor. And to pay him. And to say we're going to pay you. So that you do not... Do all the stuff we do to make a living so that you can dedicate your life to the word and prayer, not to organizational leadership. This is a remarkable move. Would this happen in our church? If the needs got so big, would we as a congregation say, that sounds right to us? Is this happening in churches throughout our It's a remarkable thing. But I want you to notice, the re, right after this move, where the church says, okay, we're going to figure out an organizational structure so that our pastors can be ministers of the word. Because the word of God, right? It goes all the way back to the beginning. It's life. It's, it's healing. It's more important to us than bread. Do you see what's going on in in Acts chapter 6? They believe that so deeply that when people who need bread ask for it, the pastors say, wait, there is something more important. We've got to stick to that. We as a church figure out how to do all of these needs. But if we give up the word time for the bread time, it's it's a profoundly flawed exchange. Because even our widows shall not live By bread alone. You see the move that was made. Now here's what's remarkable. It's how the narrator then summarizes the effect of the move. The church grew. Now that before you look at your Bible, that makes sense, right? If there's a group of people in a society without a social net, without a net to help people who who fall on rough times, if the church steps into the gaps and starts meeting the needs... Surely you can imagine, I want to be a place like that. I want to live at a place where there is care, where I don't have to fear my, my senior years. But in a fascinating move, the narrator does this incredible... Look what he says in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. This... this This is astonishing. The word of God and the church are an indissolvable unity. They are so closely related to each other that instead of saying the church increased, the church grew, 
It says the word of God grew. The word of God. That's the Bible. And the church are so closely related that in the book of Acts, when there is a description of the church growing, in this point, in two more instances, it takes out the word church and uses a synonym. The word grew. The very heart of Christianity is God healing this world. And he's doing this by bringing us, bringing humans into an intimate relationship with himself. He's our creator. Remember, that's, that's the center of Christianity is God bringing us to himself. Our creator bringing us to himself. And how is he doing this? He's, he's healing the evil and the death that's infected this world and that separates us from God. How is he doing this? By, by taking on flesh himself and coming among us and launching a massive, comprehensive restoration project to restore every aspect of life on planet earth and the earth itself. And at the very heart of it, This idea of being brought back to God, God is doing this through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to us through his word, through the Bible. That's what all of this is saying. You you read the Bible, you're like, wait a minute, is the word Jesus or is it scripture? Is it the church or is it the word? And it's not because these things are all synonyms. That was slightly the wrong word earlier. It's that they're also intimately related to one another. The Bible is the field in which is hid the pearl of great price. Jesus Christ himself. And if we will return to this field, return to scripture and dig in it and read in it and learn it and study it. Then again and again, God will draw us to himself on eagle's wings. The Bible is the witness to what God has done to heal this world. It recounts God's dealings with his people and his promises and his warnings and his consolations and his commands. And it lays out the standard of our relationship with God. It is all of that. And it is more than that. It regulates our relationship with God and with each other and with this creation. And it is more than that. The Bible is an authoritative, binding witness to the fact and the terms of our covenant relationship with our Creator. We, the church, exist only as we are related to Scripture. God rules the church through the Bible. The church and the Word are so intimately related that when the Word fails... The church loses its identity. So what do we do with this? Two things. One for us as a church. And one for us as individuals. First of all as a church. Let's work hard. To keep the word at the center. Let's live deeply immersed in downtown. Let's follow David Cooper's noble, incredible leadership into Line Weaver. Let's work with open doors. Let's continue to push as hard as we can into one of the darkest areas in Harrisonburg, the arts. Let's do mission. Let's care. Let's share. But let us never, ever 
think that the identity of the church is any of that. It belongs in the car, but it is not in the driver's seat. Let's recognize that the word of God and the church of God are an indissolvable unity. Listen to this passage. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Would you say that today? You know, there's this popular saying, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, to which there's a good biblical response. Baloney. (laughs) Words are necessary. Now, I know what the saying is doing. It's pushing back against hypocritical Christianity that used words with with hypocrisy that was canceling it out. But listen, the other extreme is just as wrong. As inappropriate it is to to speak the gospel and not live it, it is just as flawed to try to live out the deeds of the kingdom and never actually name in words the gospel. How can they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing, not seeing. Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In another part of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, not the deed. Not the act of compassion. In our enormous push toward democratization, egalitarianism, there has been a pushback against teaching. What gives you the right to stand up in here to talk to this room? Do you know how odd this looks to the world? What we're doing? Look at this. I mean, just look at the architecture of the room. You're all gathered around. I'm standing here talking for five minutes or 45 minutes. (laughs) You do what on Sunday? What gives him the right? I mean, there are so many impulses in our culture to cancel this out, to turn this into a discussion time, to treat the Bible as a dialogue partner and a pastor as an opinion among us. And in Revelation 1, 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. In all of these passages, and there are so many more, we see that a blessing arrives when Scripture is read aloud and heard. And what we're seeing is that it's something that's woven like a golden thread through all of the Bible. The church is the primary context for hearing God speak because the church is the bride God has created to listen for her groom's voice. And this is something that is taught throughout the Bible. I'm not saying that I'm infallible. Absolutely not. Just ask any one of my children. My wife. Janelle probably doesn't know it, but my children do. (laughs) The church is the primary context for hearing God speak. So when the church and the word get dissolved, it is utter catastrophe for the world. The word of God speaking through the church is the hope of the world. The church is the body of Christ. And while the church is a primary context in which God speaks, primary, not only. Like I said before, God speaks in lots of ways. 
It's the primary context. The worship service is the primary event in which the church listened for her groom's voice. And it is, the hear, it is hearing scripture read and interpreted in worship that is the primary way the church engages with scripture. So church of the incarnation, let us never ever dissolve our connection to the word. And it's right here where it is most central. So if I ever lead us away from the word, fire me. The word is over us. And if we ever depart from the word, we should take the name church out of our title. We can become another civic organization for the good of the city. So that's my first point of application is that we've got to keep the word central. In our small groups. In our public worship times. My, my, my second point is for us as individuals. Remember where the sermon started? The words of Agur, the answer to the fatigue and loneliness and cynicism and ennui of our culture is God's word. And the primary place in which we receive God's word is the worship of the church. So here's my push to you as individuals. Don't treat Sunday morning worship as one more of your weekend leisure opportunities. If the word is primary, and the word is primarily received in the church, be very careful that you're more quick to skip church than work. Work is for bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. Be careful. Be careful that you've not slipped into a modern view that this is a voluntary assembly of people doing something for God. Now, I'm not saying you can never miss worship. Here's how Janelle and I do it. At the beginning of the year, just think, how many times am I comfortable missing church this year? Just be intentional. Isn't that what you do with work? You set up front how many weeks of vacation you get? Isn't that what you do with work? Isn't that what you do with your employees, Kyle, right? We, we, we say, okay, you get this much vacation. In other words, we say up front, this is how much. Look, we, we, but you, why don't we think about church in that way? I'm not saying you can never go on vacation. In a couple of weeks, Janelle and I are going on vacation for two weeks and we're not going to see you. And I'm not even sure. If, I'm, I doubt while we're on vacation, we'll go to church on Sunday. But we do that very, very rarely. I'm not trying to say you can never miss church. But I'm trying to say, if everything I've been saying is true, how does this impact your weekends? How does it impact your decision? Do I go camping Friday night and Saturday night? Not only must the word stay at the center of our church, but the word in the church must be at the center of your life. Because man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. In order for God's word to nourish the deepest parts of our life, we must... We must make a commitment to it. I know this can sound self-serving. Do it at another church. I don't, I don't want you to. I want you to do it here. But all I can say is I'm not motivated by self-serving. I'm trying to be true to scripture here. 
To be a healthy church, we need to fall in love with God and His Scriptures. We need to soak ourselves in Scriptures, to immerse ourselves in the Scriptures by constantly reading them and studying them and frequently turning to them. Wednesday night, I talked a lot about how to read the Bible by yourself. But this morning, I'm talking about the relationship of the Bible and the church. And if I talk about this relationship of the Bible and the church, and then we all leave here and don't think of our relationship to the church... We've just heard a lovely little thing like, like, like one of these paintings and then walking off to forget it. And through scripture, if we will do this, God will work in our lives and bring about his kingdom. He will restore shalom. A life of flourishing and prospering where our relationship with God and with each other and the non-human creation moves ever closer to its intent. This is God's purpose. This is what God is doing through his word. What is God doing through his word? He's bringing shalom. He's bringing healing. By the power of his spirit, this is what God is doing through his word in the world today. And without the Bible, the church cannot exist. The two are that closely related. Let us pray.